were made to worship. Every human being has, in fact, been hardwired by God to worship. Every day, every human being will worship, without exception. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom begins a new 16-part series in Ephesians chapter 4. It's titled, The Heart of Worship. Did you know that you were created to worship? In fact, the Bible claims that every person, without exception, worships something in some way every day. Well, throughout this series, Tom will examine various sections of the Bible that reveal what it means to have a true heart of worship towards the only one who should be worshipped, God. We'll look at who God is, why He is worthy of worship, the way Scripture prescribes how you are to worship Him, and the outcomes of true worship. You'll be confronted with life's most important question, a question that you should keep in mind throughout this series. Who are you worshiping? But before we begin today, here's Tom with an opening thought about this new series. Tom? Bill, I think it's important to start with an overview of where we're headed. We're going to look at worship, the fact that we were made to worship, but we're going to start by looking at what we do when we don't worship the true God. We don't stop worshiping. Instead, as Scripture teaches us, we worship something else. That's what we're going to look at together. And then we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 4, where our Lord lays out foundational principles of worship that ought to drive all of us. So it's going to be a rich and wonderful study. There's so much to learn from both the Old Testament and the New about this key issue of worship. And in the end, you're going to learn that you were made to worship made to worship the true and living God who has redeemed you in His Son. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. We're looking at the issue of biblical worship, the reality that the world and our own hearts are filled with idols. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We produce constantly idols. This morning we come, however, to the positive side of worship, to the reality that there is biblical worship of the true God, and we want to ask the question, what is that? What does it look like, and how exactly do we do it? Some of you may have seen the article in the New York Times. They published an article with the interesting title, Darwin's God. Well, that title comes from Charles Darwin's comment in in a book he wrote called The Descent of Man, this is what he wrote. A belief in all-pervading spiritual agencies seems to be universal. Darwin was acknowledging what this article also agrees with and acknowledges in these words. According to anthropologists, religions that share certain supernatural features, features like a belief in a non-corporeal god or gods, belief in the afterlife, belief in the ability of prayer or ritual to change the course of human events. These religions are found in virtually every culture on earth. 
The article goes on to cite the fact that a Baylor University study in 2006, a survey, discovered that some 92% of Americans believe in a personal God. Well, you can see then why Darwinian scientists are trying to understand this nearly universal awareness or belief. They have concluded that it may well be, and this was actually expressed in the article, that man is hardwired to worship. Their concern is with how. How did that happen? Why is that a reality? The article presents a number of possible explanations. One of them, according to a number of radical neo-atheists, as they're called, radical men in academic circles who would love to expunge humanity of any kind of religion, these men say that this sort of universal consciousness of God is, quote, a useless and sometimes dangerous evolutionary accident, end quote. Richard Dawkins, for example, the Oxford evolutionary biologist, wrote a book titled The God Delusion. In that book, he wrote, religious behavior may be a misfiring, an unfortunate byproduct of an underlying psychological propensity that was perhaps at one time useful, end quote. Dawkins views religion in every form as, quote, a scourge to humanity. Other evolutionists in the article argue that this sort of universal God consciousness must be the result of positive evolution. They say at some point early in man's evolution, there must have been some advantage to his survival to postulate the existence of a divine being. And so he did. And because of the survival of the fittest over time, those who had this belief were somehow better fitted to live in a hostile world, and they survived and they passed along that evolutionary gene to others. Now these, of course, are ridiculous explanations. There is a very clear biblical explanation for the existence of that universal God consciousness. And by the way, I would say it's universal. Those who don't believe in a personal God, according to the Apostle Paul, are suppressing that knowledge, according to Romans 1, but it's still there. There is a universal consciousness of God. Why? Because there is a God who has created man, and he has through his creation and through his providence and through his man's conscience made his own existence known. And through that self-revelation, God calls for our worship. You remember that when we began our study of biblical worship and throughout our study, we have built on three foundational principles. Let me remind you of them. Number one, the end for which God made the world was his own glory. The end for which God made the world was his own glory. God did not have to act. He was not required by something outside of himself to act. Instead, he chose to act to display his glory. Principle number two, then, the chief end of man, therefore, is to glorify God. If the chief end of creation was to bring glory to God, then that means your chief end and my chief end is, as the catechism says, the glory of God, to glorify God. How do we do that? How does man glorify God? 
That brings us to our third foundational principle that we examine together, and that is we were made to worship. You were made to worship. The chief way intelligent beings bring glory to God is through the act of worship. We see that from throughout the display of, of human history, and when we look into eternity through the pages of Revelation, we see that worship will continue predominant in heaven. That is how intelligent beings like we are most bring glory to God is through worship of God. You were made to worship. Every human being has, in fact, as the article hinted at, been hardwired by God to worship. Every day, every human being will worship without exception. He will either worship the true God in the way that that God has prescribed, or he will commit what the Bible calls idolatry. But worship he will. He absolutely can do nothing to change that reality. Now, today I want to add a fourth foundational principle, and it's this. God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship him. God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship him. If we're made to worship, then the next question is, so how do we do that? How do we accomplish that reality? The answer to that question is only as God prescribes. To put it another way, we can worship God only in the ways that he has prescribed. Now that's the principle I want us to examine that principle today, and I want us to begin by looking at the biblical arguments for that principle, and then secondly, the practical ramifications. Let's look first at the biblical arguments support that foundational principle that we worship God only in the way he prescribes. Is that biblically true? Absolutely. The scripture makes it clear that God cares infinitely how we worship. Let me walk you through just a few passages, and in the interest of time, it will be just a few. If I exhausted all the passages that make this point, it would be a series in and of itself. But let me just give you the foundational ones. Turn with me to begin with this morning to Genesis chapter 4. Extremely early in human history, we learn that God cares about how we worship. You remember the story, of course, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Cain, the first human born into the world, comes forth from Eve. And then in verse 2, again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, so far, so good. Both of these boys, sons of Adam and Eve, both of them involved in worthwhile occupations. Nothing wrong with what either of them are doing. Verse 3, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now, stop there. If you had never heard the story, if you had never read this before, you would think this was a good thing. Cain, the first person born into the world, has been raised by Adam and Eve who came to know their sin and came to know God's redemption through the death of a substitute, who were promised that there would be a person who would one day come to finally and ultimately deal with sin. They've taught their boys this, and their boys, now Cain, has brought an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. This is a good thing. 
Verse 4, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Stop there. Again, it appears that Adam and Eve have had a great positive influence on their children because they both are bringing offerings to the Lord. The story doesn't end there. Verse 4 says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now the first thing I want you to notice is that Cain brought an offering anticipating that God would receive it. That's why he gets angry when God doesn't. So the motive of his heart, to some degree, was legitimate worship. Now what happened here? Well, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what happened. We can't be absolutely dogmatic, but I can tell you this. One of two things was wrong with Cain's offering. Either, number one, the content of his worship was wrong. That is, he offered a sacrifice to God that was contrary to God's standard of what a sacrifice was to be. Many commentators will say, listen, while it's not revealed in the pages of Genesis, it's hinted at in God's killing that animal to clothe Adam and Eve, And God undoubtedly prescribed for Cain and Abel that the sacrifices were to be blood sacrifices. That may be. We don't know for sure. It may be that the problem with Cain's offering was the content of his worship, that he offered a sacrifice contrary to God's standard. Or it may be that his heart was wrong in offering the worship, and that's why Um, And God knew that, and then God rejected it because of that, and you see it displayed then after the fact in Cain's anger. We can't be dogmatic. I personally believe it's the first, that Cain understood he was to offer a different kind of sacrifice, and he chose, out of his own reasoning, to offer from his own, the fruit of his own hands, from the labor that he had put into the growth of the ground. But I can tell you this. Either Cain failed to worship God in truth, that is, according to God's revealed standard, or in spirit, that is, with all of his heart. One of the two things was true. What I want you to see from this story is that God cares about how we worship. Every part of this passage identifies the reality that Cain thought he was worshiping God. He had the intention of worshiping God, and yet God rejected it. God cares about how we worship. That's seen in Genesis 4. But perhaps nowhere is this principle announced with more clarity, with more seriousness, with more solemnity than in Exodus chapter 20. I want you to turn there with me. And this is where we really get the heart of this great principle. Exodus chapter 20. Let me remind you of the context here. The children of Israel had left Egypt some three months before. So they'd had a three-month journey from Egypt through the wilderness, and they are now at the foot of Mount Sinai. We learn from Numbers chapter 10 that they will remain here almost a year, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai for 11 months and five days, according to Numbers 10, 11. They will stay right here. The first two days that the, after they arrived at Sinai, again, remember, they've been gone from Egypt only three months, and they're at Sinai. The first two days there are spent in physical and spiritual preparation. But then on the third day, chapter 19 tells us, the day begins with an awe-inspiring display. 
Really a terrorizing series of events. Now, I don't have time to walk you through the entirety of chapter 19. I encourage you to read it because it's really dramatic. But let me paint the picture for you. First of all, that morning on that third day, a thick cloud descends and rests on the mountain. And out of that cloud, there comes claps of thunder and bolts of lightning. We understand that here in Texas. But this is no ordinary thunderstorm because accompanying it, there is an increasingly loud sound of a trumpet. A trumpet begins to blow, but instead of staying at the same intensity, Moses tells us that it continued to grow louder and louder and louder until the people could hardly hear. In addition to this, smoke rose from the mountain as if from a great and huge furnace. And if that wasn't dramatic enough, we're told that an earthquake shook the entire mountain. The people are experiencing all of this reality. Moses partially ascends the mountain and God sends him back down to tell the people not to cross the boundary. As Moses tells the people that, something dramatic happens. That trumpet sound is blowing louder, ever louder. The mountain itself is shaking. It's covered by this thick cloud with lightning and thunder coming out of it. There's smoke as if from a furnace rising. And the trumpet, ear-piercing now, suddenly stops. And there is silence. And out of that silence, all the people hear the very voice of God himself. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying... In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses Moses makes it even clearer that God himself, with his own voice, spoke these words. What a dramatic scene. Now, what follows are what we traditionally call the Ten Commandments. Literally, they are in the Hebrew ten words. Each of those commands is, in fact, a single Hebrew word. Because encompassed in those Hebrew verbs are these great imperatives, these great commands. So notice the first word or the first command in verse 3. We looked at it several weeks ago. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this first command that God speaks deals with the object of worship. The object. There is only one God, and he alone is to be worshipped. The Hebrew reads literally, There is not to be to you other gods to my face. There is not to be to you other gods to my face. The word you here, by the way, is singular. God wasn't speaking to the crowd of two million Israelites. He was speaking to everyone, just as he speaks to us. There is not to be to you and to you and to you other gods. What does he mean by other gods? Any other objects of worship and devotion. There is not to be to you any other objects of devotion to my face, or as it's translated in the NAS, before me. What does that mean? That means in my presence, or in place of me, or in addition to me. All of those things are implied there. You're not to have any other objects of devotion in my presence, They're not to be in place of me, and they're not to be in addition to me. This command 
tells us that we must fear and love and worship the one true God and Him alone. That's the first word. Notice the second word in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now, the first commandment dealt with the object of worship. There is only one true God, and he alone is to be the object of our worship. The second command is related to the first, but is different. This command deals with the mode or the method of our worship. Notice specifically the prohibitions that God gives us here. First of all, don't make. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. The word idol simply refers to a figure made of wood or stone. Something, anything man makes is implied in this word. It's not to be the likeness, notice, a form which we see in creation, that is in heaven or earth or under the sea. It's not to be some kind of pictorial representation of any created thing. That's what, that's what God is saying. Don't make anything that is a pictorial representation of something that I've made and then make that thing an object of your worship. Make that thing a channel through which you worship me. Remember, the first command dealt with the object of worship, only the one true God. This command deals with how we're to worship him. God says, don't come up with some plan to worship me through your own improvisation. Through your own ideas, your own plans, your own schemes, your own methodology. Now, obviously this command, as the first one, forbids all false worship, all forms of false worship. But it primarily forbids a visual representation of the true God as an object of worship. Now, it may also include making any image of God. For example, some of our brothers believe you shouldn't make have any pictures of Jesus. It may include that, and certainly if your conscience is convinced that's what this means, you shouldn't do that. But it certainly means that we're not to make any sort of visual representation of God that becomes the channel for our worship. Now, it does not include, or exclude, I should say, art and sculpture, all art and sculpture. Obviously, the tabernacle was commanded by God, the temple commanded by God, and within those, you have things like the cherubim covering the the mercy seat. You have engravings. You have uh, various embroidery on the curtains representing divine things. You have even the brazen serpent that God commanded Moses to make. You have the rod of Aaron that was put within within the Ark of the Covenant. You have the Ten Commandments and the stones on which they were written. So it's not forbidding making any art or sculpture. It's forbidding making any art or sculpture that becomes either the place of worship or the the channel through which you worship the true God. Notice, don't make. That's the first command. The second command or the second prohibition, verse 5, don't worship. You shall not worship them. Now the Septuagint here uses a word that refers to bodily gestures such as bowing or kneeling. God says, don't make them to be an object of worship. And secondly, don't worship. That is, don't bow before them. Don't kneel before them. If you've ever seen any of uh, 
the pagan religions, you see this happening. You know, they have their little idols and they, they bow or kneel before them. God says, don't make them. And secondly, don't bow or kneel before them. Notice thirdly in verse 5, don't serve them. The word serve here includes all religious ceremonies, offering sacrifices, incense, etc. Don't make them, don't worship them, and don't serve them. The spiritual import of this command, listen carefully, the spiritual import of this command is incredibly far-reaching because it absolutely forbids all human invention in the worship of God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.